Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film or show and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known here on WIR as DJ Lilas, and you're listening to WIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond. I'm here today with Anna White and MK to discuss the anime series number six. I just watched MK wave. Like, can't see MK. <laughs> yeah. If you can hear the wave. Uh, for those who don't know this wonderful duo, MK and Anna, let me introduce them. They met at SUNY's BFA program and instantly, as far as I can tell, became film partners. MK and Anna now own their own production company called Captain and Captain Productions. They also ran and continue to run a very successful YouTube channel called Captain Clean Freak that um, shocked me with the 233,000 subscribers and over 50 million views. Um, they got their with um, comedy skits and uh, cosplay content. Their goal is to create content for marginalized groups that they can see themselves more represented on screen. Friends, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Thank you for having us. So we met at the Genre Blast Festival where I was lucky enough to see your short called Freely We Serve. And I was really blown away by it. And you actually won, I think what was the award? You won like best animated? A best animated short, yeah. What did that feel like? That was the first, I think it was uh, the it was first pretty- award <laughs> that we won for in person. We won like a very, we did um LGBTQ Global Arts Fest and that was like all virtual and we did win something, but the way that the, the awards worked, it seemed like a certain placement that we got as opposed to like you the award system there was very weird so it was kind of hard to figure out like did we win first did we win second third like were we in alliance we were kind of confused about that so this was like Mm -hmm. the first Mm -hmm. film festival that we like won best of a category at so that was pretty amazing (laughs) and then and then you recently went to new fest which is here in new york and i was lucky enough to go see a couple films for um that's so cool good job you know like after all the hard work that goes into a short film all the months and months and thousands of extra dollars and then more money it does really feel good to get that extra validation (laughs) right like just like okay yes like this was worth it i'm not like it's the only thing that matters but um it's just really cool to see that because i i you can just tell from watching that short how many hours and muscles were straight so it's always just because i think we've We've screened in person a couple of places, but I've only been able to attend three, like, in-person screenings. Um, but of whenever I see it in person, I, like, have at first a moment of, like, stress. Then I'm like, oh, our movie's, like, happening. And then I get really stressed again. And then I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Like, like in theory, mm-hmm. before we see it, I'm like, wow, I'm so excited. It's going to be on a big screen. And then, like, it starts. And I'm like, oh, God, it's on the big screen. No, as soon as you fir- hear the first notes of your score, right. your stomach tightens Literally. all the way. Just like, MK um, is also it's a really very cool to see it on uh, a visual screen, person. So then I sit next to MK and I watch MK go through these emotions because MK can't hide them very well. Mm. <laughs> kind of very obvious. Mm. So I have to sit there. When we like, were at New Fest, yeah, New Fest, we, okay, because normally, um, like genre blast or we were like the weekend before new fest we were showing at um seattle queer fest and both of those like it was shown with like a lot of other like weird films but when we were at new fest it was like a lot of like serious like movies about like 
religion and like finding acceptance and it was like a full house like full house almost every seat was filled and like ours started I literally couldn't watch like I think if anybody like looked over at me I had my eyes covered no it was <laughs> for like a good chunk of- like I sat down I sat down the seat I turned to MK and I was like man I really hope we're not the only ones who made this about like queer specifically like religious trauma and rebelling against like religion as a form of trauma so the first one starts and it's about finding like acceptance in religion and like using it as like a way you know like you know like finding like your path to queerness through your religion and then the next one kind of similar and I turn that's when I'm like to MK and like uh, to my boyfriend next week and I was like and watch us be the only ones and we were we were the only film <laughs> that wasn't about like uh people being like queer and like that was, and, so that was good but it was it was definitely stood out and i was like oh god this is <laughs> this mm. that makes us really like off because at least like if there was more you could be like oh and there were like you could put us in a in a subcategory but you really stand out when your puppets hating god <laughs> and that's that's the only one I'll be honest, though, I think it's really easy to make assumptions about how people interpret your film. And I definitely didn't interpret it as a completely anti-religious film. Like, I'll be honest, like it, it didn't feel that way to me. Of course, they do say let's, spoiler alert, let's kill God. So like that, it's very like, um, uh, it's got some dark, his dark materials vibes. I, I think I brought that up to you guys. That, that That's like a big plot point in those books. But yeah, I'm sure that's like a lot of pressure to be the only one holding it down for the other yes. side of the and especially because like it's definitely interesting to um, have other people watch the films and see what they get out of it. Like people of like various backgrounds watching it and like because I showed it to somebody who asked me like, oh, this is about Trump, right? Like this is this is about like Trump and like like politically. Ooh. And I was like, well, but this is why yeah. I and I was like, well, you know. Not really, yeah. like, that That wasn't our intention, but, like, yeah, I mean, you could look at it as Trump followers being a cult, like, and because ours is about using religion as a form of control, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a religion, it can be literally any situation in which a person is given so much power and being able to manipulate that to control people, so I was like, it could, yeah, no, that definitely fits into, like, the meaning, mm-hmm. it, it's not religion, but, like, yeah, that's, that's what we were going mm-hmm. for. Well, when I was writing this script, one of the best things. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about this at, when we talk about number mm-hmm. six, but I was mm-hmm. going a lot for um, like a very Shakespearean-esque kind of story. Um, I, like I, I was inspired a lot by stories like Macbeth, um, and I feel like that's why Shakespeare is still so like beloved now, is that you can take these stories and there's such iconic stories of like kind of human nature and they can yes. slide yep. through almost like you could pretty much do a Shakespeare show set in any, I think they did actually do a Macbeth based on Trump. And like, I think it was for um Shakespeare in the park, like the other year or something, but it just like, it's, it works so many different time periods, which is why he's still, he's still the goat and stand the bard in this well, house. My dad and I had this conversation once where it's like you can still read Merchant of Venice and Hamlet and Macbeth and King Lear because humans yeah. are still the same. 
like the plot points are all the same because we all get jealous of one another and we all have issues with our dads and we all like like humans are still the same so as long as we don't evolve to another plane of existence it will always be relevant and it is relevant because it's kind of the center point of the episode we chose to talk about today so i know people who are listening to this episode so far are really interested to hear more about what this short film is but first i want to ask anna and mk why did you choose number six and why did you choose this episode in particular well number six came out when i was about like 13 <laughs> um and it's so funny so it's a, it's from 2011 it's a very, very obscure anime now. If you're trying to Google it, you can kind of only find it through illegal sites. When it came, initially came out, it was mega popular. Um, tons of, tons of people. I remember going to like anime cons in like early 2012 and you couldn't go, you couldn't walk 10 steps without seeing like uh, uh, she's on Nezumi cosplayers. Um, so I think it's very interesting that it definitely has not like stayed relevant is kind of like vanished into the it's really faded into obscurity like internet very it's it's very surprising because it's not it's it's a good show like it's so it's weird how it's gotten like you can't find it anywhere anymore to be fair it's very gay and we know how people feel about that yeah well speaking of queerness there's i can i could see why there was so much similarity in the character dynamics, which we'll get into in a minute, but you're, you're, so it sounds like you're interested to talk about it because it, to me, what I really found interesting was the sci-fi element. So it's like sci-fi and romance. And this story to me, having only recently kind of discovered how the ending goes to me had, was a romance. It's a romance. Like I thought I, I found it really interesting. So, so you had both watched it when you were kind of at that young formative age. Well, MK watched it. I hadn't heard of it Uh because I don't know what, I hadn't heard of it oh. until uh, we got to college and MK was like, we should watch number six again. I'm like, like, you've got to watch so good. this. And I was like, <laughs> I I've literally like, never heard of this like, before. <laughs> and MK was like, no, you got to, like, you've got to see it. So we watched, I want to say it was freshman year is probably when we watched it. And I thought it was great. I loved it. I love the sci-fi elements and obviously they're in love. So mm-hmm. it was it. definitely not for everybody. No. I think. Everybody. And I read an interesting thing about it, which I do think, you know, I, I kind of feel like almost is very interesting about it, where if you took the two leads out of the story, nothing would really change that happens yeah. in our world. Yeah. All the events that kind of happen still take place. And a, a lot of people have, like, a problem with that because they want their characters, like, I, spoiler alert at the end it kind of turns out that like everything like they don't manage to pretty much do any of the things that they were trying to do the person they're trying to save uh, and dying the, the world still falls apart um Shion, our protagonist whole thing was trying to save all these people everybody still dies mm-hmm. um but it at the same time it's not like a sad ending and so i do know a lot of people had issue with that because we want our protagonist to like succeed and that their actions have meaning but I think that actually makes something very interesting about number six that doesn't make it a traditional kind of sci-fi, the bright-eyed hero goes and saves everybody story. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not typical for anime, right? The Most of the time, an anime story, at least from what I've watched, is normal kid has incredible powers and completely changes their world or is taken to another world where they're completely integral. Like It's more of like the kind of classic fantasy plot, right? Like you are the chosen one. 
chosen one has to save the entire world and the entire world like hinges upon you doing that. So that's a really interesting point that it's a, it's a very different approach that it's a much smaller, more intimate kind of uh, breakdown between these two characters. And I can definitely see because it is so much about character dynamic and dialogue and back and forth and, and relationships. Um, But first let me tell you guys a little bit about what the show is because we will spoil it. Um, (laughs) This show will have tons of spoilers. If you really want to go find this show on a website and watch it, you can always find this podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. But I highly recommend continuing to listen because some studies show that a little bit of light spoilage can actually increase your enjoyment of a show. Um, however, we are going to be like completely spoiling it. So <laughs> released in 2011. This one-season miniseries on anime adaptation of number six, released by Bone Studio, the same studio that does My Hero Academia, follows the smart but privileged Shion whose life in the futuristic city of number six is turned upside down when escaped convict Nezumi, which is Japanese for rat, shows up in his room seeking aid. The two embark on a dangerous adventure of subterfuge and romance to reveal what makes them supposedly, or what makes the supposedly perfect city tick. Which leads to much more than Shion could have ever imagined. The episode we're talking about today is called Angel of Death. The whole series was directed by Kenji Nagasaki, and this episode begins with the strange death of a young woman who, after expressing mild dislike for her job, sees her skin begin to turn black. Her body ages completely within a few seconds, leaving her a desiccated corpse and a wasp flies away into snowy winter air. That's like the opening two minutes of this episode. (laughs) So I'm really excited to talk more about it. That kind of gives you a flavor of the city and the world, right? That we know that something traumatic has happened and they live in a post-apocalypse, right? The city is a result. Um, But for me, the first thing I wanted to talk about is what I'd mentioned a little earlier. It's really the connection to your short freely we serve is that the two character the, the two character dynamic is really echoing a lot of you know Shion and Nezumi so Suriel and Micah have a lot in common and I just wondered if you could, two could speak on that a little and maybe tell us what what freely we serve is about yeah um so yeah I personally don't mainly because I love I love I really love Nezumi and Shion as a couple and I cannot say I love uh our Mika and Soryo as a couple um yeah but you do see the similarities no I can right? see I can see the similarities like there's like a there's a total yeah. dumb sub situation and yeah. uh, I can see yeah, the similarities okay. they both kind of have relationships have power reversals yes they do have power reversals and I feel like the well, archetypes of the characters are a bit similar too I mean Xion definitely mimics Mika in the sense that he's the more naive, he's the quieter, he's the, I need to, I don't exactly know what I'm going to do, I'm going to follow Ryan, right? Nesme is more of the like, I know what's going on, I'm going to be the leader and take charge. So I can definitely see it in that sense, but I feel like their dynamic is definitely healthier than Mika and Soriel's. Uh, just because I don't feel like there's an active, well, to an extent, there's an active need to control in Freely We Serve between Soriel and Mika. Um, but that's not so much done out of love where I feel like Nezumi does want um, Shion to be a to like start to like act a specific way and start to follow specific motions and kind of do what he says. But that's more so I think he sees it as a way to protect him as he's now entered into this big, like, dangerous world. Whereas Soriel's yeah. intentions so are with, a lot yeah. different. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen the meme, like, I can fix yeah. him. Yeah, well, I can make him worse. Memes. I think if yeah. you were to sum up the relationship in number six, that's kind of the, the, the big focus of their relationship is when we begin the show, Xion is this very bright-eyed, hopeful young man who really, really wants to do good. I'm also going to spoil their whole character arcs for the end of this. But Go for I it. That's, really what we're, that's what we're doing here. <laughs> so, yeah, so Xion's is hopeful and he wants to save everybody. Uh, Nezumi, we come to find out his entire kind of family and, like, his entire race was genocided by number six to take over. So he hates number six and he's the very last of these people and he wants to see it kind of burn. So we have two very different characters and Xi'an actually saves Nezumi when he's a child. And then later on, we kind of are inciting incident to really springboard us in episode two is Nezumi saves Xi'an from getting taken away by number six because he witnesses something he's not supposed to and they're going to kill him. So they kind of are an equal footing by the time their relationship really starts to evolve. Um and while Xion, Xion wants to, like, save everybody, I think we mentioned it earlier, but there's these wasps that are infecting people. And Xion thinks that, like, they can go in and save number six. And, of course, Rat wants to have number six crash and burn. And they're both kind of... And he says it multiple oh, yeah. times. He has no so, yeah. This is a problem. He, like... <laughs> He's very clear about it. He's like, you keep wanting to save this city, and this is gonna, this yeah. will make us enemies. Like, this is yeah. going to make us enemies. And I was First like, ooh, yeah. I wish everyone was this clear in their communication. Is He's like, <laughs> I, I'm so scared yeah. about like, I need yeah. to protect my mom and my family. And Raz just like, whoa, let's get rid of number six. He's like, you yeah. keep talking about your mom. He's like, this whole thing about your mom is gonna be a problem. Like, caring about anyone in the city. I love that though, right? They're completely different worlds. The, the romance is very clear from the beginning and I love that the seed is planted from a young age and yes the the like power dynamics is really where the similarities to your characters end <laughs> because like the intention yeah. is different right the yeah. intention to control versus the intention to save and protect mm-hmm. well one um, of my favorite things about Rhett is that he is like a 16 year old boy and he's so edgy <laughs> Like, I feel like just his way of thinking is so, like, what, like, an edgy 16-year-old boy would be, where it's like, I don't care about anybody. I think, because we really are focusing on episode five, I think episode five, their scene opens with Xion's trying to, like, help these kids, and Rat's like, stop bringing kids into my house, like, blah, 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 and then Xion's like, oh, hey, then why were they wearing, like, the sweater that you clearly gave Mm -hmm. to this kid, Mm -hmm. where he really deep down does care about things and he just tries to hide it um so then it makes as the series goes on and we kind of enter the final story arc i think rats tried so hard to make xion change and they they go into this place where it's, it's going to be like really really traumatic and in that moment rat kind of realizes he doesn't want xion to change that he wants xion yeah to stay the way he is and that he really He's really grown attached to it. But, of course, once they go through this traumatic thing, Xion kind of snaps. Uh, like, Nezumi ends up getting shot. And Xion goes cuckoo cray and, and has a gun and just, like, shoots somebody in the head. And it, like, breaks Nezumi. Like, I keep going between yeah. Rat and Nezumi. They're both his name. It kind of breaks Rat because he, he realized he kind of wanted to protect Xion from turning into somebody like him. And he's not able to do it. So they kind of flip-flop mm-hmm. in the final arc. 
you mentioned something about their names. I thought I would point this out. You know, this is an anime. It's it's in Japanese. The names are something that feels really interesting to me. So both of them have unique names, and that's pointed out in the very first episode. Nezumi is Japanese for rat. So when MK says rat, that's basically how weird it would be for someone to be named rat, right? It's like that we would be saying that word. Whereas Xion is named for a flower and it's a, it, we don't have an aster. We don't have asters in, you know, the, the, the West, so to speak, but it would be sort of like being named Daisy or Rose. So like their names are literally like rat and Rose. And yeah. I love that. Like, it's like, that is, it's unique and very strange. So, um, Tell me a little bit about how you chose the names Soriel and Mika. Um, I went on a, a Google search for angel names. <laughs> I'm very yeah. bad. <laughs> I Google generates some angel Google, names for me. Thank and you. I was like, what seems like a fancy name that an angel would have? <laughs> and then I just kept kind of googling until i found i did not check the meaning i don't know what i honestly i could do that right now okay yeah let's see if there's any like if are there any angels named actual angel in it we did include an actual mentioned it's uh archangel michael um so i I'm coming to believe, I think I invented the name Soriel because when I Google Soriel, um, only ship art between Toriel and Sans from the game Undertale is coming up. So I'm pretty sure I just nice. made that one up. Um, let's see what Mika means. I think Mika actually is a real name. Mika is a real name, yes. So, so Anna, can you give me a kind of a short logline of what happened? What freely we serve is about do you want the log line that i tell people uh to get to get their attention or do you want like our actual log line <laughs> well now i want to hear the log line that you tell people to get i tell then people it's about gay puppets that try to kill yeah. god and then everybody's like oh my god that's so great and then they think it's a comedy and i'm like oh no it's not it it's it's it has <laughs> no this isn't a puppet pals this i was like it has serious. humor uh but it's yeah. it's it's not it's a drama and everybody's like what why would you say that? Then? I'm that's like, well, my that's favorite part about watching it in a theater. Yes. My favorite part of watching it, like, in a movie theater is, like, when everybody's, like, kind of laughing at the beginning. And then by the time you get, get to, the, to the war room, room scene, everybody's just, like, silent. Uh, I'm glad that's at least a fitting name. Honestly, you could have been trying to do uh, Sariel because that's an actual angel name. Um, and you just spelt it wrong. Or Serial. I think I found something. And I was like, I, that might have been what happened is that I found it. And I was like, I don't like how this name sounds. I'm going to make it better. And I think that's what letters. you did. Because that's an actual angel. Um, oh. <laughs> so that Well, that's actually a good point to bring up. We're going we're gonna to dive a little bit into using religious allegory and just addressing religion in film um, in just a second. But first... I want to remind you that you're listening to They Came From Outer Space here on WIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. My name's Cameron Kitt. I'm here with MK and Anna talking about the anime number six and their own short film, Freely We Sucker. So, so Anna, what I'm hearing is that the seems kind of like mk did you originate this idea mk more or less? did this come to you yeah. and so anna what oh i was gonna say mk wrote it um 
I think the semester before, and we had a few drafts go in and then come the second time around, because this was actually our senior thesis film, um, and we were revising it again. That's kind of when the two of us came together and we're swapping it back and forth. So like the first original drafts were MK, and then from there on, we were looking at it together and figuring out how to adapt it to film together. It was my senior year of high school, and it was actually in my film, like the, uh, the original script. It was just the last scene of the movie. Obviously, much, much, much worse. <laughs> very bad um was in my portfolio for when i applied to purchase and i actually sent anna i found a drawing i did of Sorio yeah. when i was in high school and, and i sent it to anna and it, he looks very different he's like dark like black hair and like scars it's like super edgy and i was like look it's the og that's awesome i mean mk you have you have a history of of like being really prolific and writing especially a lot of um what I would call Yuri work, um, right? Like very, uh, a lot of angst, right? A lot of longing, um, a lot of like strong male protagonists and soft boys kind of thing, right? Like you have a history of like, you have like a thing that you're into. But what is intriguing to me is like, when you have a partner that is able to come to the table with maybe a similar childhood experience and able to bring something to it so that with two people, you're creating something that's even more powerful. So, you know, you know, I, I know you guys mentioned you've both grown up in religious households, but like, Anna, what did you bring to the story? And like, how kind of how did you find your through line? Yeah, so I feel like what the big thing was, we did both come from two different religious backgrounds and being able to like, bring in those like different experiences all together because MK grew up Jew Jewish, I grew up Catholic, <laughs> and had to go to like Sunday school and all of that. So that was kind of a good way to be able to like, kind of have that similar lens in but enough like difference in backgrounds were like kind of taught especially because a lot of people definitely when they watch it interpret it as like at, which probably should, it's catholicism because that's like the dominant religion that we have in the west um because it's you know or yeah no we're in the west <laughs> had a had a I guess it's the it's it is the original it's the original flavor of Christianity, yeah. yes. right? Like it's, it's the like been around flavor. the longest. You could argue that there's some some like orthodoxy. Yeah, out there well, I mean, you have are, a you've got like um, Yaltarian and all like the branches, but they all root back to like Catholicism. Essentially, everything kind of branches out from there. Um, so definitely having those experiences and. And yeah, so I would say definitely I did not contribute as much to the initial writing phase, like the initial plot story that I would so like for the most part solely credit to MK. Um, my influences more so came in like the choreography, in the editing process, in the actual shooting, in like the direction of itself, the film, the shot language. That's more so I feel like where my own style starts to come in a little bit more uh, just because MK had done most of the heavy work in terms of the story. Definitely the scene that we had to reorganize the most, I would say, was the camera scene and having to find a way to uh, make that work, especially now with puppets. That's also like being able to adapt this to puppets because this wasn't originally intended for puppets. This had to be completely reworked for puppets. 
It was not intended for puppets. Okay, so for those of you listening, I just want you to imagine, it's so hard to explain. These are pretty lifelike puppets. These are not little Jim Henson puppets. They have semi, they have human faces, they have glass eyes, and they have human hair wigs and costumes. And these beautiful, you know, they're not like completely realistic. They have kind of more of a mask style, but they're really beautiful like objects in and of themselves. So imagine that turns out they're really giant. And from what I heard from the both of you, very yes. heavy. And that's like a big, big takeaway from you. Um, but the, and I just want to interject a little more. It's about uh, these gay lovers. One who is very controlling, tries to convince the other to kill God. And then there's a little bit of a reversal. There's a lot of subterfuge, just like in the show we're talking about, but um it's a very, I highly recommend just trying to find it on IMDb. I don't know if you guys are going to post it online at some point after you're done with your festival run, but it's just a really unique film. It's something you don't see a lot. And it was like uh, really refreshing to be completely without, you know, a lot, when you watch a lot of short films, you tend to see a lot of the same plot lines reused, right? Most things take place in a house um, with the same kind of cast and crew. So if it wasn't originally intended to be puppets what was it originally people to be? uh just your standard um traditional actors oh, yeah okay <laughs> um and it was going to be because i'm okay specifically in the way the story was written uh definitely would have needed to fit that um scene mk's really into like um german expression, german expression. Yeah, yeah. Was very close it was very close um i can't remember the term for it I, it was sitting there um so especially in like mk's earlier works you'll really kind of see those uh elements and then this was written like for that like if this had to be people it would have had you know with like the dark show especially with it being like based off of a play well essentially heavily influenced by plays um so that was probably going to be the original style and overall aesthetic that we went into um and then as we're sitting there and trying to figure out how we were going to do this because we wanted the garden to like really real at first and like have it look like actual plants and then like there's a reveal and change that and that's just that wasn't going to happen um especially with it being covid we tried to pitch it to our professors and they basically told us you're not gonna be able to do this um because it is a romance and there's like you know scenes where they're physically very intimate together and that's when mk was like what if we did puppets and i was like okay well if we did puppets we'd have to like really figure out how we're going to do that we'd have to really sit down and yeah not everybody was on board with the idea like yeah. now i can't picture it like exactly same puppets, but when i first pitched the idea of puppets like i told my mom and she was like this is a mistake <laughs> like don't do it. like we knew going in we were like either this is gonna work really well or it's gonna be really yeah. bad and there's no in between because they can't show emotions so we I really had it work really well thank you i know it i like the good thing i can't I think imagine it's really important to do yeah. different yeah like i think it's important to push yourself to do something that's unique like we're in a world where there's more and more and more films there's more access to film it's not a bad thing that's a great thing like i'm so happy that more and more kids born today have access to all the tools they need to tell their own stories and even for you all like all the content on captain clean freak right like this like direct to an audience kind of like this whole idea of like there's a revolution in media now where you can create stuff that's just kind of direct to the exact people who need to see it but the fact that it is puppets when i was in school so i, I studied sculpture so i was really intrigued by it because the sculpture aspect right you were creating a set you were creating a tremendous amount of art 
for this. One of the big rules you learn in sculpture is that like one of the biggest things that goes towards whether or not people like enjoy and like your art is if it looks like it took a long time. That's like the, unfortunately, so a lot of people have a really hard time with a lot of modern art because if it doesn't look like it took a long time, they have an immediate kind of distaste and you have to really overcome that with a lot of content or really strong concept. Um, So that's the thing. It's like, it looks like it took a long time and the concept's good. That's kind of the key. how long did it take? Uh, okay, so actually, in terms of like how long it takes to normally produce a film, quite short because we have the deadline of this is our senior mm-hmm. thesis film. Um, so mm-hmm. shooting was three weeks. Um, we thought it was going to be a weekend. It was not a weekend. It, it was three weeks because we had had the voice actors performance and we got up and ready for our week of shooting and we said, can't be that hard. I mean... These, these are they're puppets. You just got to move them. Like, it, you don't have to worry about performance, obviously. We have the performance. It, it was three weeks. It was horrible. Um, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> definitely would not recommend that experience to anybody. Um, but so the shooting itself was three weeks. I would say we shot, we shot in March. So then the editing process was about two months. And then pre-production would have been, what, four months, I want to say? So overall, yeah, it was about not counting, yeah, not counting the script writing. It was like about a full year of production. Yeah, yeah, sounds about right. So anybody listening out there, and and what's the final runtime? About twelve minutes. (laughs) Twelve minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, mine's ten minutes, and it took the same amount of time a year. I think it's really easy to underestimate. Um, Mine wasn't for a senior thesis. I'm actually, I love that. Like, I love the hard deadline, right? Like the like heck yeah and also you probably have access to some crew through your school and maybe some cameras and stuff but I think it's really easy to underestimate when you're watching something how much work it takes until you do it and one of the people I had come on this podcast his name's Drew Bolduck he said something I think about a lot which is he you can't really criticize a film until you've made a film and I think about that for other things too like I as a DJ I I wonder if I even have license to criticize albums until I've made an album right? Because I have no problem criticizing album order or this or like song stuff. But yeah, it's like until you actually get your hands dirty, you gain a whole new level of respect for how much work it takes to get to the final edit. So I'm impressed by it. I'm I'm really intrigued by the idea of the co-directing team. I I have a a film partner who I work with a lot and she and I tend to do a lot of like management together and I can't really imagine working without her on things, right? Like a I, I did I did chlorine more or less by myself and and Andy who's my film partner with my AD but she didn't actually help through all the pre-production and it's like oop never doing that again right like what solo teams solo teams dang it's hard and I know you talked a little bit about this when we met but um speak if you wouldn't mind just speaking a little bit more about like how you managed directing two with two people so the way that we went about it was we pretty much split everything down the middle in half essentially um so and that could be for example like different things for example uh when we were auditioning mk was going through the initial of taking out who's just absolutely not a choice who's good i went through the process of i'm going to be contacting these people and organizing all that and then when we were far far enough at a point where um we were really narrowing it down and we had like all the obvious no's (laughs) were out and then we had our potentials that's when what we did was we split up, went to like separate locations 
MK listened to auditions. I listened to the auditions. We came up with a list of who we liked each. And then we came back together and said, mm-hmm. okay, I think this person's good. I think this person's good. Um, and for the most part, it mm-hmm. lined up. We have, we have very similar things. Um, mm-hmm. So for the most part, we were kind of on the same board. And I feel like that's kind of just how we were with most of it is we have very similar styles and we both know how to like do things to make a project, like what's good for the project, not necessarily what's good for the person. So like a project may need something. It's kind of like you kill your darlings Mm -hmm. almost. You have a second person to be Mm -hmm. there with you to be like, okay, we can't have this. Um, And I think we were both very Mm -hmm. good at being like, okay, this is what's going to make the film, the film and keeping, oh, but I like this kind of to the side because that's not necessarily what it's about. That similarity. helps a lot in terms of producing something and we've had worked on films prior to this uh we've each have made our own separate films but have been heavily involved so this was the first mm-hmm. one that we dedicated to as like this is our film and it went great i don't want to direct by myself again it's so much harder when you're by yourself also it's like so much about trust like me and anna have been like best friends for four years and like you know like Anna's like my sis like literally when I say like like my sister like you know like like my like long lost twin sister so I feel like there's just like this trust where it's like if one of us is like you know I feel like that the any story I've heard about like co-directing going badly normally I feel like happens with like ego or yeah. like yeah. like people not being able to compromise to get around and so me and Anna do have very 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 similar styles and but obviously there is like differences once in a while and I think having enough trust in your other in your co-director and having enough trust that if like I'm really tired and I'm like I can't figure out the blocking the scene I totally trust Anna to totally still we have the same vision to be able to take over like I don't need to like be watching over her shoulder exactly. every second and vice sure versa perfect. like um, you can it yeah. lets you have a bit of like a break almost when you're in the process it gives yeah. like somebody else that can like if you're not in a place to be able to deal with that if you're directing by yourself that's tough like you have a film that you have to make like you gotta just hire through but if you're in a place where you just genuinely cannot like physically emotionally like be present you have another person that you can trust to be able to run things smoothly and come back exactly. on. You're doubling your ability to, you know, there, have you, I'm sure you guys have heard this phrase, nobody cares as much about your film as you do, like when you're directing, yeah. but you have both, you have two of you. So like if there's two of you, no one cares as much as the two of you, that doubles your ability to get things done. And yeah. it just seems like such a relief. Now, of course it is dangerous, especially when you're really good friends, or you really know somebody or this thing is really close to the vest. Um, but it's just, to me, it just, it's, it just makes more sense, right? Like thinking about it as teamwork instead of a hierarchy has always made a lot more sense in filmmaking, like even more distributed decision-making, like down to like costume and music and makeup. And like, as long as everybody's playing the same song, I think it's good to let people exactly. be creative because you don't have enough and mental like- energy to control everything. I'm sure. Yeah, well, yeah. and I feel like the way that, like, I feel like people always are like, oh, yeah, making a film is a team. But then they tend to have this idea of like, oh, and like the director is in charge and then there's the team. And to an extent, I would say that's true in the sense of like the vision. But I feel like especially this experience, the way that I tend to look at film is I put trust in each person that I bring onto my team. I trust that the camera person is going to be able 
to deliver the shot. Like, cause that's what they've trained for. That's what they do. That is their job. And I've brought them onto this project. I trust that they're going to do that. I trust that my actor is prepared. I trust and really seeing it less as like, oh, I'm in charge and I'm like getting people to do like things for me and seeing as collaborative of how can I help you do your best job to get to the vision that I want to see. And having that attitude when it came to co-directing is what really helped, I think, because I'm not looking at it as like, oh, both of us, like who's really the leader? I'm looking at it as, as like, you are my partner in creating this. How are we going to direct people and bring people into this project that are going to be able to assist us? I feel like, and this is just me going on a limb, I feel like people put in better work when they're given some freedom and trust, right? Like, I be- I trust that you can give me input. The cinematography in your short is so good. Like, there's so much, I mean, how do you do the lighting of heaven, right? Like, that is not a tall, that is not a small order to be like, give me heaven. Like, like that's an hour That's not easy. Oh my God, Zena <laughs> loves Zena so much. Zena was such I'm just like a champ going through this because uh, we had essentially had um, some issues prior because Zena wasn't going to be our original cinematographer. We had somebody else who was not able to continue the shoot for us. I'm, I won't say why because it's, you know, it's like personal reasons. So Zena came in amazing. after we had shot for like one day. We maybe had, I, I think we had less than a scene. Um that we had done and we said Dina can you come in like we essentially had to cut our second shoot day that we had planned because we didn't have a cinematographer and we spent that day trying to find people and I had worked with Zena briefly I think MK had also worked with Dina briefly and we had so many just good recommendations about her and we were like hey would you want to do this she jumped right on immediately like got into it like she knew what she was doing she knew how to match the style that we had spent months going over with the previous cinematographer. Like we had had several meetings about it. Oh. And so we basically put Zena in. Oh, and yeah. did- this happens on every yep. short film, right? Like every film, there's some dramatic backstory that like months of work are washed away in a moment, right? Like that always and happens. And she yes. got it just right away. And it really like we could be like, okay, Zena, what do you think is going to be the best like angle for this? Because for this also, usually we're both typically the type of people to write down full shot list, you know, um, and know like exactly which shot is going to cover what, but because of the unpredictability of the puppets, we were like, there's no way that we could accurately represent, make a shot list that represents what's going to happen. So we were like, Zena, we don't have a shot list. Are you comfortable with that? We, we can go and power through tonight and come up with one for the film, but we really want to like work with you and know what, like te- we want to tell you what we want, like what our general aesthetic vision for each of the scenes are and then kind of like trust you in baking and putting it together dang that's a lot to and ask she, from a cinematographer which no shot because we had been going over dang. this with our previous we working for months exactly the other, so the other one like right. new, on the same page and Zena hopped in yeah no shot list nothing yeah. and it's beautiful she did an amazing job it's yeah, All right, guys. Zena Kubesi, Kubesi. If you want to look her up, Z E E N A. Was she also? Um, we will get back to the the show. Um, was she also the gaffer? Everything. Mad respect, Zena. Okay, yeah, so like we actually we have a 
because we had no sound. It was literally me and Anna directing, um, and then Xena, and that was it for crew. I think right. We had so like Anna kind of like doing like PAs. Yeah, uh, but sometimes for, like our friend's set, partner crew. Well, you had to have somebody puppeteer. Yeah, we had our puppeteers. Um, oh yeah, I'm talking about yeah, I'm thinking of, like crew, like actual like crew. I oh, think like, yeah, like crew. crew. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah, I think for like crew. Yeah, that would have been like yeah, that would have been you, me. I just like the realization just hit me. I was like, wow, did we really only have a because she there was that's no incredible. sound. He did lighting, so, gaffing, and cinematography. I shot my short in August 2019. I moved up to New York and shot it here. I'm a big fan of a big cruise. I had a crew of 25. So like there's a big difference when COVID's yeah. not a thing. And I loved having my big crew because we had to shoot my entire short yeah. in two days instead of three weeks. Um, but anyway, let's get back to number six here. Because um, I love I love the connections. And I do feel like, especially this one episode, episode five, the angel of death, the one with a lot of religious overtones, really paired nicely. You know, it was like a wine and food pairing with your with your short. Tell me what what really stood out to you about this episode, MK. Um, okay, because I did say I was going to link it back to Shakespeare, and I'm Let's going go. to do that. So in this episode, um, up till now, we know that uh, Rat is an actor, and we don't really know what kind of actor. <laughs> we just know he's a really popular actor, and this like pimp character is like is like always oh, the best. Like blah 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 blah. He's this huge fan. And up till now, I think what's interesting about number six is kind of the reversals of the characters. And as we've already kind of discussed about Rat, he's this emo, like, I don't need anybody. Like, I'm a badass, like, um, character. So, and Shion, at the beginning of the episode, wants to see him in the theater. And immediately Rat's like, no, and, like, flips out and, like, storms You can't off. come. Um, so... Yeah, he's like, don't come. And she was like, why doesn't he want me to come see him in the show? Uh, and when he finally, of course, Shion does go to the show. Um, and we see that um, Rhett is playing the role of Ophelia in full drag. Full drag. <laughs> um, icon. If you think, even with all the Shakespeare, like, female protagonists, but, like, Ophelia is a very feminine character. And the the monologue we actually see Rhett do is the act three scene one ophelia monologue i do know my shakespeare um which i think is interesting because in this monologue from ophelia she talks about hamlet before he kind of changes and after he changes and i think it's a very interesting parallel to later on in the show when we see Shion really change into this person that Nezumi doesn't want him to be. Did it strike you that him being Ophelia in drag is, is how they used to perform Shakespeare? Yeah. That's I, what, oh, that was the first thing I thought. I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Cause like it used to be that, you know, male body yeah. characters would still play the female characters. And yet he was so ashamed to be Eve. And that shame doesn't really seem to be coming from culture. Nobody seems yeah. to care. Like everyone's like super in love yeah. with the, it's it's why like why why is Nezumi so ashamed? So it seems like he's ashamed to show the the gentle, soft well, yeah. side. I think himself. like he's vulnerability. He wants to be somebody who people look at and they're like, oh, like 
he wants to be somebody that you look at and you're like, don't mess with this person, like essentially. And he's not. He has very he's very feminine, essentially, like in his appearance as well. And I mean, you can just like especially and that's not just anime like drawing character drawing boys when they're like oh and he's a very manly man like they have the uh pips from the prostitute that kissed she on a couple episodes earlier and they're like oh like look at that like essentially like the oh like you're a boy but like the pretty face like slender like girl kind of attitude towards him and i think a lot of that comes from he doesn't he want he doesn't want to show that he has a softer side to him. He wants to stay hard and probably believes in to an extent. He's like, oh, don't get close to anybody. And he sees that softness as like an entry point where somebody can come in and be like, if he's soft to somebody, they're going to come in and like, he's going to get attached to them and like then leave. He wants to be somebody that's seen well, as it, hard. It's referenced directly at the end yeah. of the episode where we see, we see earlier where uh, Rat's always like, be careful of your vital points. Don't let anybody come close to your vital points to Shion or, you know, like this is a doggy dog world. They'll kill you. And at the end of the episode, Shion reaches out and ends up grabbing his vital point just to check on him, not to hurt him or anything. But Rat freaks out because he he's never let his guard down and he, he didn't even realize he'd let it down around Shion enough that Shion could go and touch it like a vital point and because if she had wanted to he could have killed him and i think that that accidental open vulnerability in episode five is a real shift yeah my favorite thing is when rats like when rats like who is this guy how did he do that yeah. like, oh, you let him it's you like you love him like you like him that's why like what do you mean and also i feel like it's especially Shion's like personality i think that Nesmi is really not used to and I think that's what brings it out of him as well because you see a couple episodes again when they're talking to uh, Dog Loan and he gets irritated at Xion and he, they're like having their little back and forth that they do their little bickering and Dog's like he what like he doesn't do that with anybody like he never like it and he's like, yeah he never gets he, he's not even like that heated up and like, he's just irritated <laughs> Xion's character is one that it's mentioned multiple times is a very disarming character. I find it really interesting that they put a lot of effort into letting you know that he was he lived in a place of extreme privilege, not just within this extremely futuristic city where, you know, um, you have like a bracelet that tracks you every every little there's like a lot of really well done futurist elements in the animation that I, that was something I really loved, like his house and everything, but that he, he was like one of the foremost students in the city, right? And like mm-hmm. everything was given up. And I found that one of the most interesting parts is like they go through great lengths to show you that this person is extremely smart and then do very little with that through the rest of the episode. It's like, is his intelligence emotional, right? Like they're like that that part almost wasn't as necessary. Um, but yeah, I really loved the idea of having this futuristic city and then the city outside of the city where they're doing Shakespeare. Right, like there's something just really satisfying about that, right? Like, like that is it is the idea. Like, there's a lot of themes there. Like, some themes never change. From the first five episodes, the the big theme that I'm getting is like obedience and yeah, fascism. Like, right, like the difference between living in a city where there is no choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's really something you two bravely dealt with in your short. Right, is like. This is, these are not small intimate topics even though you're having it play out within an intimate relationship you're you're talking about mastery ownership fealty like 
Shakespearean topics, really. So we only actually have a few minutes left. Time flies. I, I have one last question yeah. for the both of you, which is, you know, looking at this show, this is our first ever anime that we've discussed on the podcast, and this is episode 45. So good job. What can you, what can we as filmmakers, especially low budget filmmakers, learn from this show and take away? I think the biggest thing is, especially, I feel like number six is such a good example on it, is ensuring one character personalities and relationships between characters are strong and gotten across because like mk said it like in the beginning basically if they hadn't done anything all the events in the show still play out you watch it because of shion and rat's relationship you watch it because of how they interact with each other and when it boils down to it that's how every essentially good movie is like you watch a movie because you get attached to a character and it can be you can be attached to that character because they're such a super, like, well-developed, like, deep character. Or you can like that character because he's just kind of silly and he says a funny thing every once in a while. And then you watch it because, like, he's there and it makes, like, the show, the rest of the show, like, bearable for you. So, yeah, I would say just making sure you have strong relationships with your characters. Yeah, uh, and I think the thing that put um like number six why it meant it's something i still remember because um, is it the best anime no <laughs> it is not but i think the reason it has such a special place in the heart of people like me that grew up in like 2011 2013 we're kind of you know teenagers teenagers i said i was like 13 when this came out was that it is a depiction of an lgbt relationship where it's so not a big deal it's not the whole focus is about the fact that they're gay it's not it's not it's nothing about that it's just this very very small piece which i remember when this still came out um people like would be like oh it wasn't a romantic they didn't kiss romantically they're just friends (laughs) and you're like what it's not it's not actually queer no, i'm sorry you cannot watch you can't watch 30 seconds of this show you can't and watch the opening. like there's yeah. so much catching of breath touching of skin like it is so, it's so romantic it starts with a giant rainbow coming down it's pretty heavy-handed it's heavy-handed that they're gay but it's yeah, not yeah. a big deal that it's gay yeah, yeah. When this came out, there were genuine like because this is like it hadn't been done before really because every other, especially in, like, anime, LGBT representation had been this, like, either really almost grotesquely, like, graphic or, yeah. like, so ex- had to be almost its own genre of content that when this came out, people almost didn't believe that it was actual LGBT rep because it, it really is just a sci-fi story. It's a sci-fi story yeah. that happens yeah. to involve this. But it's not what it's about. It's a sci-fi story about people from two worlds, and they happen to be both boys, right? Like, and it's satisfying. Oh, boy, is it satisfying. Like, it's really great to watch. Um, And I think those are two really excellent takeaways. So, Anna and MK, for people who are listening, where where can we find more about your work? So we have an Instagram. It's called Captain and Captain. You can follow us on there. We've been posting briefly we should get better about that um just like what festivals we're going to be screening at what events we're going to that kind of stuff so that's probably the best place to really keep up with our film work would be there awesome well um you've been listening to they came from outer space here on wrirlp 97.3 fm richmond indie radio thank you so much anna and mk for coming on thank you for having us (laughs) 
You're not so bad. I'm just following your lead. 